0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ask a Doula Giver, the podcast and platform to help reduce the fear of death, to help empower family caregivers with the skills on how to care for their loved one and help to heal from grief. So, today, my name is Suzanne O'Brien. Thank you so much for being here. Today, we have a very special guest, Jennifer O'Brien. Yes. My name is Suzanne O'Brien, this is Jennifer O'Brien. We're not related, but aren't we related because we're related in this thing called life. And so we're all related, we're all in this thing together. We're so excited to have her, her name is Jennifer O'Brien. She helps people talk about caregiving and end of life. She encourages compassionate, real conversation through her book, The Hospice Doctor's Widow, a journal where she shares her story of caregiving through collages and writings. After years of caring for people with serious illness as a physician, Jennifer's husband Bob was diagnosed with stage four metastatic cancer, but caregiving for the man who had made a 40-year career of caregiving as a physician was not easy. When Jennifer's husband was diagnosed and later after he died, she turned to what had brought her comfort for years, art journaling. She documented and depicted the raw, honest, and beautiful and exhausting reality of caregiving through collage, tableaus, notes, and observation. She included much of the wisdom and perspective she learned from her hospice in his years as a physician this book is to me an honoring, a culmination, a teaching, all of the above, a healing. So
1: welcome Jennifer O'Brien. Thank you, Suzanne. It's wonderful to be here with you.
0: Yeah, I've wanted to do this interview for quite some time, as you know, so I just want to hold up your book here. So beautifully done. Um, So Jennifer, let's start from the beginning if we can. I think that, again, I want to honor your husband and I want to thank him so much for his service to others because I know as a former hospice nurse, how passionate you are to be in that space and also how difficult it is, Um, especially at a time in our lives right now where we're not doing end of life. We're not dying well at all because we don't prepare for it. We don't talk about it all those things above so so I honor your husband for doing that work so let's start from the beginning Um, I know that you were very you would hear when you're married to somebody and when you're in a relationship that does that work they come home they share stories they you know so I'm sure you got a real inside look at what that was like what kind of care but what happened when he himself got diagnosed how how did that go for him and for you
1: um. Yeah, it was, it was just as awful as, as you can imagine. I mean, there's, um, there's no sort of inside line for those of those who have been doing it for years to feel any less um, scared or right. um, sad and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, we were both, we were both devastated. Um, I had lost my brother, my only sibling, at a very young age, when mm-hmm. I was 18, he was 13. Mm. Yeah, and then my mother died not quite 20 years after that of pancreatic cancer. So I had a lot of personal experience, um, and Bob really only had professional experience. Other than yes. his right, other than his yeah. parents, yeah. who were in their 90s, he right. had never lost anyone. So it was both devastating and scary for each of us in those different ways and reasons, right? I knew how bad it was gonna hurt to lose yes, him. right. Um, so there was that, and then, and then he kinda knew what he had seen so many patients go through, and, and so that was that for him. And, and a lot of what he had seen patients go through um, was also the wisdom that we had, right? And, and so that helped a lot. Yeah. 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 I think something that you said here
0: is so important that there is never one end of life that's exactly like another. And again, I've worked, I've had the honor of working with so many people and there's not one that's the exact same because of the elements of the life's journey that come and play a role in that. So I love that you shared that. And, um, you know, did he Go into treatment. Was he in um, the standard medical treatments? Did he go that route too? And how did that how did that play out for him, and differently than it may for someone who was not a hospice doctor, if if at all?
1: Right. No. Definitely. Um, you know, I was a little surprised um, when he got the diet. We got the diagnosis. You know, if based on how he had been prior to being diagnosed, I would have thought he would have gone for a little or no treatment, just palliative care, um, you know, to help symptoms and that sort of thing. Um, but, but there's been so many developments in, in cancer care and in chemotherapy, targeted therapies and so forth, that when the oncologist kind of first said, hey, wait, let's just take this, you know, there are different steps that that then he we both kind of went oh wow there there might actually be something right i mean jimmy carter got cured of medicine, of melanoma mets to the brain at 90 years old so there could be something for us right some targeted therapy so of course we we looked at that pretty quickly and then and then the genetic makeup of the cancer was not um, conducive so so yes, he tried some 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 therapies that um, that were that did make us a, make a difference, give us a little longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say he also was different in his approach to choosing, to deciding on the next therapy that was that was offered. So as some of your listeners probably know. Um, You try a chemotherapy of some sort, and it works maybe for a while, and then there's a complication or a side effect that is just too risky, so they say, okay, we have to take you off of this, and then, hey, how about let's try this next one, and Bob was very different than you and I, or maybe not you because you're a nurse, but but certainly than I would have been on... Evaluating whether or not he wanted to try the next one and I actually observed him do that several times Mm -hmm. and made some notes in my journal about it laypersons notes about how I observed that he would go about those decisions because I thought that was um, fascinating. Um, And certainly I learned from it as a lay person. And so I made the notes originally in the journal and and they've turned out to be helpful to others, you know, kind of deciding do I really wanna try the next one? Okay, this is really important for people to hear. So I wanna thank you for that. And then we're gonna get into the book.
0: Um, I feel like, again, from being a nurse on the inside, so I've worked in oncology, I've worked in hospice, and exactly what you said is not happening readily. So, and there's not, again, there's not one path that's correct for any person. It's for you to decide what's right for you. But within that, you need to do your due diligence and you need to gather your information and you have to see if this feels right for you and what do you want to do. So I love that. And so that's extremely helpful to not only talk about but to have in your journal. So let's talk about the journal. You started writing it during the process of the
1: experience of the illness, of the the journey with him? Oh, yeah. I started it almost immediately upon yeah. finding out the diagnosis. Yeah.
0: And, and what was your goal for the, what was your meaning behind it? Was it something for you? Was it something for you to share with family and friends
1: or just so to product? It started out as just something for me mm-hmm. um, for, for two reasons. One, um... The art process, um, especially because I'm self-taught, and and right about the time Bob got sick, I decided to teach myself digital collage. So there was this uh, whole head and heart thing going on, right? Where I knew what I wanted it to look like on the page, from the heart, but I couldn't get my brain to tell the computer what to do. But anyway, so that was kind of a you know that was a really neat way to to do something with. With the energy and to and to engage in a self care that was really sort of unique to me. Mm-hmm. And the second thing I really wanted to do because I think about the first few pages that I did, um, mm-hmm. that I documented, and and the first three that I'm thinking of um, all are from Bob's own wisdom. So the term precious time when he used to tell families you're into precious time that was his wisdom and I wanted to get it down in a way that was interesting and that would you know that I certainly that I would keep for a while um the photograph of the two of us you know Bob turned to me and said if you want a good picture of me we better get it soon yeah. Um, because he yeah. knew that he, his looks would change, yeah, um, and and so we did that, and and I I put that in the journal right away, and um, and the other one was the the story about his parents that he used to tell patients um, about his mom and his dad, who both had v- vastly different end of life wishes for themselves, mm-hmm. and how him, and how they honored he and his siblings honored both their wishes because the right answer is your answer. There is, right? There's no other right answer, but your answer. So, so those things were the, the first ones. And, and it, was, it was that combination of just taking care of myself and wanting to be sure I documented some of his wisdom. Um, but it originally started out purely for myself. I, I, after he died and I kept going with it, then I started to think, well, I'm, I might, I might share this with family. I might, you know, get copies of this printed mm-hmm. and give it to my family members, you know, whatever for Christmas or something. And then, and then the, um, got some feedback from a physician that no, this really needs to be out in the world. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you and I talked before,
0: and we, we both understand that right now, you know, death is the number one fear in the world. And I shared with you right before we started recording the podcast, that there were a few instances as a nurse, as a hospice nurse, as an oncology nurse, that the patient was actually dead and family was present and didn't know it. Um, And I feel like it's because that disconnect and that fear paralyzes us. And for me, it was always so um, heartbreaking because when your husband says precious time, when fear is in front of us, you're not present, you're not grounded. And that's, that's the precious time. And I've seen so many families lose that because again, we're putting people in the home, expecting the families to care for them. Hospice comes in, they're absolutely beautiful. But if you're petrified, don't know the first thing, you could miss this whole precious time section. So having this conversation, which by the way, is a hundred percent something that we're all going to go through is this End of our life's journey. So to share what can work and and how human this connection is with all of us, um, I think is so beautiful. So that's wonderful. The other thing that I think about your book that's so important is that there's so many times that nobody asks the caregiver, "How are you doing? And what's your day to day journey like?" Because you're in go mode a lot of the time, you're in crisis. And yes, the person is the one who's experiencing the end of life, but that main caregiver, it's just as important. There's a lot going on. I I always say we need a care plan for them. And so for you to be documenting that, I think was so healthy and therapeutic for you. And then of course, to share that. Um, And the other thing you shared is that then you wanted to go with friends and family, share it with them. And so for us to, to know that there are people that are not necessarily in that immediate, nucleus in the house, but they're all holding the space and wondering what's happening. And for them to have a way to know what's happening from the inside without maybe being intrusive or what, what not when it might not be appropriate, um, keeping us all in the loop and holding the light for that situation. So there's just lots of layers there.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah. So tell me, what was the biggest aha moment during the journey or something that you could say was really something that you really um, experience that changed the trajectory for you, or that you found is the single most important thing that you want to share with others?
1: There, uh, there is I am Here's so not sure I can come up with a single most okay. important thing okay. I want to share with others. A couple. Um, there, so there's two, two things then, I'd like to answer that question with two. One is the aha, mm-hmm. and the other is, is, I'd narrow a single most important thing. Um, the aha was early on after the diagnosis, um, and the page that corresponds to it in the journal is um, is also early on, and it says, "Well, let me tell you the story." So, so Bob wanted nothing more than to work. He yeah. loved his work, yeah. and so our our sole goal was to keep him well enough to work and to manage what was happening with his disease and what was going to happen with my survivorship. Okay. So, so that, was, that, was our, that was our objective. And um, it was a Saturday morning and we had talked about going to this museum up in Northwest Arkansas. And I woke up and I was ready to go and he was dragging and he was tired. And he said, "I am Jennifer, I am going to get you some literature on cancer fatigue. To which I said, Bob, I am not one of your bleeping palliative care fellows, which launched us into a most unattractive argument and went to our sort of separate corners and I re- and I didn't like it, right? I was like, mm-hmm. wow, how did I let that get so far afield, you know, mm-hmm. and precious time and you know, the whole thing is, and I realized, and this is, this the, the page in the, in the journal says, we're going through two different processes. Yes, he is dying. I am surviving, and those are intertwined, and they're both important, but they're they don't end at the same place. And so, right. for me to feel comfortable going on after his death, I needed to not have engage in any more stupid arguments, and I did not after that. So that was that was the big aha, and thank goodness it happened early. Yeah. For me. Yeah, um, because I, I feel because as I say um, a lot on my website and so forth, there are no do overs in end of life. Um, it's one of the few things that is a certain and b. We only get one shot at, That's and it. those of us right who who are still here have to live with how that how that incredibly important event in our lives went went down. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so that was really wonderful to have that aha early because it breaks my heart every time I read in a widow's group or in some other group, you know, I just, I thought we had more time or I just didn't realize it was happening so quickly. The piece of advice, the one single piece of advice that I would love for everybody to, to take, and I would say this is true for both families that are, you know, people that have received a diagnosis and those who have not yet is, is that also twice ends up in the journal, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. And that you are all, that that the word is and not or, right? That we are living and we are dying, that we are hoping and we are preparing for this inevitable. And we are doing it all the time. It is not, or it is not, but it is not, I have, I'll do that later when someone gets sick. It is, it is, it is, it is an, and, and is complex as, as we are as humans and it, and it is happening simultaneously. Um, and the same thing is true in the throes of the diagnosis that you may be adjusting to what now is the best, right? In the beginning, the best might've been a cure yep. um, as time went on and that wasn't gonna happen. The best was um, him being able to work yep. and feeling, you know, being comfortable. Yep. Um, and the worst was pain. The worst was, you know, and, and that, those adjust and the, and the best becomes a peaceful, dignified death. And the worst becomes, you know, something, a death that is traumatic um, to me or painful to him, that sort of thing. And so that that what the best and the worst are kind of adjust along the way, but you're always balancing that. And I I learned, I actually learned that, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, from an oncologist I worked with years ago who would not only tell his patients that, but tell them that at pretty much every visit. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's so important. Yes, it is. because it, A it's, it's language that those of us who are not nurses and physicians can understand. It's, uh, it's words that we can assign meaning to, and it allows the doctor or the nurse to check in and say, okay, so where are we on the preparations list or, you know, efforts? Mm-hmm. Where are we on the hope scale kind of thing that, that that reintroduces that concept um repeatedly and yeah. um helps helps people manage where this is headed so interesting
0: here and I, I love it and i i often said i hope that we get to a place where we do our annual visits you know when you go in and your doctor says you know it on your annual just the checkup. um at some point in our journey you know it will turn from you know, us looking into things and 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 not fixing, I don't like really like that word, but us, you know, trying to reverse things to really close symptom management in our journey. So that someday I know that, yeah, my doctor's gonna say, do you remember when we talked about all those years that this is the time that I'm gonna make sure that your symptoms are managed and that your quality every single day. I mean, isn't that our goal? So that it's not foreign to me, that I don't, because it's, you know, it's it's something that right now we almost treat death as optional. And, yes. and I, and I think that, and, and I've been in situations with literally where I've heard in oncology, where there's, you know, somebody who's 98 years old, has cancer metastatic all over, and the family is saying, doctor, you know, what next, fix it. And wow. And I remember one time I, I was in the New York City doula Givers office and the phone rang and I picked up the phone. There was a doctor from Miami, critical care, sounded a little older and he said, you need to help us. And I said, okay, you know, what can I do? And he said, Families want us to fix it, and the hospitals are standing behind the families, like they want us to intubate and do everything. It was just really challenging to hear. So I think one of the things, Jennifer, I really hope that we do in these conversations is bring back the awareness that the end of life is a natural part of our life cycle and that it can go really well. And that brings me to just highlight the two things you just said. You said families, one of the most common things people say is, I thought we had more time this is something that you and I should say every single day is like, how am I going to live today? Right? Because one day we know that will happen. And then knowing that, where are we here? You know, where are we on that scale? Is it close symptom management? Great. That sounds great. Not only for me, but for my family. Or is it that, yeah, let's try something different. Where are we with that? So let's live with that awareness. I love all of you got what I call those pearls that you're giving, which is fantastic. (laughs) I also just want to talk about your uh, section with anticipatory grief. One of the things that I'm finding is when we teach the doula givers training and the level one and family caregiver, people come to that to learn how to care for someone they love. That's a skill that's been lost 100 years ago, which is super important to give back. But they come and many people say, I cannot believe that this helped me to find closure, to find peace of a death that I experienced with my mother six years ago. And I'm like, wow. And so grief, as we know right now, if we're not talking about death, we're definitely not talking about grief and how natural it is and what that means, but ways to heal it. And then people, I don't think, understand that there's, first of all, many different types of grief, but also there's
1: anticipatory grief. And so could you share a bit about that for a minute? Well, that was something I, I, I didn't even real, I didn't know about, and I, um, because I had lost my brother when I was 18 and my mother when I was in my mid-30s, I knew how much it was going to hurt when Bob died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I was so, I mean, I found myself having anxiety. And th- again, this was all, that was another page I did very early on in the, in the process. Um, just kind of wringing my hands, um, unable to, to settle into what i really needed to do while he was still alive which was lean into it and and be with him no matter how wonderful and difficult it was and it was both um, mm-hmm. and a friend of mine uh, named it for me like i i was you know sort of telling her oh my gosh i i don't know yeah you know, i can't get i can't get i can't get my head around this and she just blurted it out. She said, you're having anticipatory grief. And I was like, oh, okay. And I looked it yeah, up yeah. and I learned a little bit about it. And I was like, yeah, sure enough, that's exactly what it is. Sure. Um, that some people report it as worse than post-death grief. Um, at, and uh, and so to to be able to sort of, as they say, name it and claim it and, and say, yeah, that's what that is. And it deserves to be named and honored, but it, but part of doing that is not letting it ruin or, or influence adversely what I have left here is in terms of time, quality time with precious time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. And I think again, more, the more that we can have these discussions. And for me, what I found is that most people have not seen the end of life. They really haven't because we've over the last hundred years, you know, we've, medicalized death and we've kind of like our elderly are in different places. So you might get a phone call that your grandmother in Florida died, but you can't really, it's not concrete, it's not put together. Um, And so it's almost this illusion. And this fear has, and we never want to say goodbye to somebody in their physical form, never, but it is a part of the journey, it can go very well. And when we live, I never felt more alive than when I started working for hospice. Why? Because every single day had a different appreciation. Yeah. And the love and the connection with being with people in that space of just humanity and service and presence. It it taught me
1: everything. Right. Right. There's great intimacy in, Uh, in end of life. They're, They're both in, in terms of, um, you you're seeing someone in their in their raw humanity and um, and hopefully in the case obviously in the case of doing it professionally you're honoring it um, doing it personally with a loved one Um, yes that's why the work that you're doing Suzanne is so important because we have got to have people start recognizing um, I mean, people love to do these like whatever, uh, live, love, laugh stuff and these little memes and so forth about carpe diem. but but the truth is, there seems to be this disconnect between what that really means yeah. right vis-a-vis what's going to happen at the end of life. Um, and so uh, yeah, we, we got to get deeper on that. We've got to get we got get the world to get deeper. and I, and I, um, and I think you know this but certainly I've learned it since uh, getting involved in this space is it's not our, our lack of, our death illiteracy and lack of understanding and connection to it is not unique to the US. Apparently this is a problem all over the world. It is. It is. And do you know why? Well, because
0: we have brought in Western medicine more like in many places. And so the lifespan a hundred years ago was 46. Now it's 81. It's almost doubled. So that comes all of these fix it, fix it, fix it. And we've gotten so far away from, again, the teaching tool that death is and seeing that process, seeing compassion, seeing the energetic space that surrounds that end of life process that is really incredible and it used to be again a sacred experience and we should bring that back but the first step is talking about what is end of life and getting back to what do you mean i'm going to have an end of life let's let's step into that space again what i often will say to people is is death a medical experience and they're like well yeah and i'm like no it's a human one And we forgot that so let's bring that back and it's holistic and you know this conversation is absolutely the beginning and and really everything to making that shift. So I want to thank you, I feel like I know your husband I feel like his love just shines and he has such a legacy, which I think is so amazing that. he's not physically here in his body, but he keeps giving this gift of his love of his service through you. And so again, I want to honor you um, so much for being here. And I know that you've contacted me, we've talked, and I was like, you know, this woman is so passionate and on a platform, and I want to thank you for that. So can you tell people how they can get this beautiful book, how they can contact you?
1: Absolutely. My website is hospicedoctorswidow.com. Okay. And um, you can contact me through that and you can spell out doctor or you can spell it DRS. I've got, I've got it both ways. Okay. Um, and so you can contact me through that website. You can connect to your um, book purchase source of choice through that website. Um, it's available, the, the book is available through all the major and the independent outlets. Great. Um, so yeah. So we'll have all of your contact information down below
0: so people can easily click and find you. So I wanna thank you so much, Jennifer, for being here. And again, this was the Hospice Doctor's Widow, a journal with Jennifer O'Brien. Thank you so very much.
1: Thank you, Suzanne. Thank and you. thank you for the work you continue to do. It's so important. We,
0: we are all in this together and we're all doing our part. So I thank you for that. All right, everyone, thank you so much. This was again, an episode of Ask a Doula Giver, a platform to help reduce the fear of death, to empower families with the skills, and to help heal from grief. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, everybody.